Judges chapter 3. Judges 3, and as I said, brace yourselves. I didn't write this. I didn't tell this story. I didn't make this up. But I'm gonna tell it to you as, as it is, as it's written. And there are some challenging things here. Start in uh, verse 7, Judges chapter 3, verse 7 which says the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asherot. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishataim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishataim eight years, which means for eight years they had to know and say the name Cushan Rishataim. That's not easy to do. Verse nine, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. And we're gonna pause right there and we're gonna come back and run through this text and we're gonna go through uh, actually three guardians, calling this guardians of the unruly this morning and we're gonna go through three of them and, and I don't know if we've got verses, do we? Yeah, they're working, okay, good. I think I sent them to you, didn't I? It's, okay, good because there's only about uh, 42 or so in now. So in John 21, verse 12, launching to the other side of your Bible, John 21, 12, we see Jesus standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he said to them, come and have breakfast. What a great thing for a resurrected Savior to say. Unexpected, you know, not, lo, thou hast spent many hours fishing upon thy sea. No, it's, come have breakfast. And I wanna invite you all to do the same thing as we cover the first three guardians of the unruly. It's Othniel versus Kushan, Ehud versus Eglon, Shamgar versus 600 Philistines. Those are the three stories that are, that are told here in Judges chapter three, but with names like Othniel and Eglon, it sounds like we're reading off a breakfast menu, <laughs> right? So I'm calling this breakfast of champions because we've got Othniel first. Othniel's not oatmeal, Othniel, but it sounds very similar. Othniel's story, honestly, it's a quick, healthy bite. Then we get into Ehud's story, and that slices much deeper. Plenty of protein and fiber in that story. And then we'll come to Shamgar, who gets, well, a single verse. So Shamgar is really like carnation instant breakfast, or maybe a multivitamin. You know, there's not much to the story. We're gonna ask why and, and see if we can understand that. Oatmeal is the first one. Oatmeal ben Kanaz. Now, these names are fascinating. Otniel bin Kanaz means Lion of God, Son of the Hunter. I like that. Lion of God, Son of the Hunter, Otniel bin Kanaz. And then there's Ehud bin Gira. His name, Ehud, means undivided praise or worship. Bin Gira means Son of the Grain. So there's your breakfast cereal right there. Then you've got Shamgar bin Anat. Shamgar ben Anat, Shamgar means sword, and ben Anat means son of the answer, which may or may not be accurate. I mean, that's his name, but the answer? Hmm. So, lion of God, praise, 
and sword, which are great names for guardians. Lion of God, praise, sword. And it's a great way to start your day, by the way, with undivided praise to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, bearing the sword of the word. That's, that's a good breakfast right there. So do all the names, if you go through the names of the guardians, the judges, do they make a cool sentence? Because we've seen this in the past. We've seen genealogies and we've seen names lifted, listed out. And when we take the name and write it all together like one long sentence, it's been amazing the things that we've discovered. Well, the next name on the list is Deborah, which means B. So Eyes on the Lion of God with undivided praise, bearing the sword, and perhaps carrying your own personal copy of the Babylon Bee? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you can make a sentence out of the names, but the names are highly significant, as all Bible names are. Don't ever read a name in the Bible and just go skipping tra happily beyond it like you're skipping out the door with no breakfast. You need to know the names because the names speak so much. You Bible students understand this. Names in the Bible are always significant. The most significant we hear in Matthew chapter one, verse 20, where an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins because Jesus, Yeshua, from Yehoshua, the name Joshua, as we talked about in our previous study, means God saves. Now get that, Jesus is named Yehoshua, God saves, and that is what he does. That's what he does. But Jesus has another name given right in the very next couple of verses. Matthew 1, verse 22. This all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew tells us, translated God with us. So Listen to this, Jesus means God saves, that's what he does. Emmanuel, God with us, that's who he is. What he does and who he is. And so names matter every time we see them. Of course, the Lord has many other names and descriptors throughout the Bible. Many of these you're familiar with or aware of. Maybe you're not, but there are many, and they all speak to his character, his nature, to the things that he does. He is, as Revelation uh, chapter five, verse I think five tells us, but it's in chapter five, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is interesting because that's the name of the first guardian, lion of God, Otniel. The Lion of God. And by the way, Otniel being called Lion is the only judge who comes from the tribe of Judah. So we start off right at the, off the bat with something fascinating. This is like, you know, walking by the table and seeing there's quite a breakfast laid out here. We need to stop and eat. So let's start our day off with some oatmeal. Uh, oatmeal. Uh, oatmeal. This is a story in contrast. We'll move quickly through this first one, but follow along. It's a story in contrast. It's very important to note that it's a contrast, number one, of Israel's foolish disloyalty and Yahweh's faithful discipline. 
Israel's foolish disloyalty, as Jake was mentioning, as we just read in these opening verses, foolish disloyalty. How in the world? What, what are they thinking? And Yahweh's faithful discipline. Again, verse seven, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherot. And if you ever think that's ridiculous, I would never do that. Maybe we ought to review how we live our lives in America. Maybe even as Christians, we ought to pause and think, well, what am I serving? We might be surprised when we really pause and think about it, how easy we are or easily we are influenced by the culture, and that's what was going on here. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishataim for eight years. Israel's foolish disloyalty followed by or contrasted with Yahweh's faithful discipline. He doesn't just let it roll on. He just doesn't, doesn't just sweep it under the rug or turn a blind eye. He immediately responds, Yahweh's faithful discipline. Please understand this, that even in his wrath, God is faithful. He is faithful. He follows through. He keeps his word. Even in punishment, he keeps his word. Back in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14 he said, if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror. In, in this case, Kushan Rishataim. Consumption and fever will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. God keeps his word. And by the way, a good father never just strikes out at his children. He always gives warning in advance. This is wrong. If you do this, here's the punishment. And a good, faithful father will then follow through with the punishment when the children are unruly. So even in wrath and discipline, God is faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. In the list there at Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, he's given the curses and the blessings. And in verse 15, Deuteronomy 28, he says, it will come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you with today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord, verse 25, shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them and you will be an example of terror to all the kings of the earth. So the warnings were there. They were set in place before any of this would happen. And yet, now the generation after Joshua, they turn from the Lord. They start to embrace their culture. They're serving the Baals and the Asherah. And this is what happens. God hands them over. Romans chapter 1 describes that in terms of the world today. God hands them over to their own depravity. Israel's foolish disloyalty, Yahweh's faithful discipline. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. But is it weird for you to think 
of God's discipline, of his wrath as a faithful goodness? It is. God's wrath here is a sign of hope for Israel. Because where there's no punishment, there's no passion, right? Where there's no discipline, no devotion to or concern for a child or children or a people, then the parent is detached, disconnected, doesn't care. The parent that follows through with the discipline and the punishment loves the child, cares for the child, and God is doing what he's doing, not just because I am so sick of these Israelites, point. No, he is loving them in discipline. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God is disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse five. Or Proverbs chapter three, verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For the Lord loves who he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And the Hebrew pastor picking up on that exact verse, he quotes it, and then he says in Hebrews 12, nine, we, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more or much rather be subject to the father of spirits? and live? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Do we reject God's discipline when things get difficult or don't go the way I want them to go? Do we find ourselves questioning God, defending our own selves and behavior, resisting his work in our lives, or do we receive his discipline as love? It's a good question. Foolish disloyalty, followed by a faithful discipline. And then in verse nine, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Kalev's younger brother. Second thing to note, Israel's general distress in contrast to Yahweh's great deliverance. Israel's general distress, Yahweh's great deliverance. Their general distress is written in the fact that they cried. They cried to, the word in Hebrew is Yisaku. They cried to, and Yisaku literally means a, a wail or a cry of distress, but please don't assume automatically that a cry involves repentance because it doesn't. In fact, where this word is used in the Hebrew scriptures, unless repentance is specifically pointed out as part of the cry, it doesn't mean a cry of repentance, it just means a cry of distress. Oh, help, somebody help me. Their distress rose up to God, their cries of the persecution of this Kushan Rishitaim. They're crying out, but it's a crying out in agony. And in sorrow, it indicates a condition of distress, not an expression of repentance. And I point that out to you because Yahweh answers anyway. <laughs> That's the heart of God. Need to know that God is not responding to their sweet, repentant hearts. He's responding to their mournful cries. Why? Listen to this verse about the heart of God, Judges 10, 16, which later on says, he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. It was too much. 
It gets to the point where God in his deep love and compassion for his people, and in our case, for us, will look at our misery and go, enough. I, I just can't bear it. I can't bear your sorrow. I can't bear your hurt. Psalm 106, verse 44 says, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, their yisaku, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness because that's who he is. People say he's a heartless, distant God, hardly. Come on. His divine passion blazes. It blazes in discipline and it blazes in delivery because he's a God who is connected to people and loves people who call him father. Third contrast, Israel's distant persecutor versus Yahweh's dominating power, verse 10. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. See, that, that's how it happened in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Older Testament. The spirit of the Lord came upon people. In the New Testament, the spirit of the Lord indwells us. He comes alongside us, and, and yes, he still comes upon us in power. But what we see with the judges is the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the bringing of power for them to do what they need to do. There's Beelzebub again. <laughs> Gotta deal with these flies. He comes upon with power. And this is what happens with Otniel. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. The word judged there is, is delivered, saved and when he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishataim. Now, I gotta explain something here. And, and I, I know that it's, it, when you have to explain a joke, it kind of loses some of the humor. But if I don't explain this, you won't even know there's a joke going on here. This name, Cushan Rishataim. It can be read and understood a couple of ways. Number one, where, where it says, and note this, it says, Kushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia. Some of your Bibles may read that differently. Instead of Mesopotamia, you may see Aram Naharaim, which is the Hebrew word there. The translators change it in the New American Standard Bible to Mesopotamia because it's the same place. Aram Naharaim, which means Aram of the double river, and Mesopotamia sat between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Aram, or Syria today, it's that region that was and is here in, at this time, it's Mesopotamia. So it's Aram between the double rivers or Mesopotamia, okay? That's not funny, that's just truth, okay? But what's interesting is the way this starts to unravel as you read it, if you were reading it in Hebrew, you would hear Kushan Rishataim, king of Aram, Naharaim. See, it's a rhyme scheme. You get my meme? Okay, so that's kind of, there, there's something to that. It's kind of like, oh, wow. You know, you can almost hear the oppressed Israelites going, Kushan, you know, Rishtaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, Rishon, you know, and singing this song that they would make up about him. And I think there's more to it because Kushan means blackness. It comes from the, from the name Kush. And Kush means black because Kush was and I, just literal translation, Kush was referred to those going down into Africa. So Kushan means blackness. Rishataim 
we think is not a last name, but a nickname that the Jewish people gave him because Rishataim means double wickedness. Double wickedness, and you put it together, and this name is a punny, rhyming, derogatory slam. Kushan Rishataim, Mr. Blackness, double wicked from Double River is what they're calling him. And you, so you, can, you don't have to laugh because again, a, a joke explained isn't really funny, but, but to the Jewish people under oppression, Mr. Blackness, double wicked from Double River would be a, a slam, a pejorative, if you were, uh, would, a, a way of, of really cutting down. They can't fight back, they're oppressed. But they can make up jokes and the Jewish people are good at making up jokes. And I love that that is kept right here in the word of God. Davis in his commentary says, when writing up redemptive history, the Holy Spirit and the biblical writers conspire to do it with spice. And this is why I say the names are important. If you'll pause and look them up from time to time, you'll find, whoa, they're slamming this guy. That's what's really going on here. Davis says, God doesn't take away humor when you belong to his people. Thank God that we can be joyful and we can laugh and we can even slam the enemy to a degree. I mean, be careful, you know, obviously Jude tells us, don't, don't go trying to slam Satan. You, you leave that up to the Lord. But here we see a, a literal slamming taking place of this evil guy, this doubly wicked from Double River, Mr. Blackness. They really go after him in his name. But here's something that's interesting. He's from Aram, he's from Mesopotamia. That is, Kushan comes from far away. He's not in the land. This oppressor is not a Canaanite. And so there are even some commentators who say, well, well perhaps, perhaps he's not really from, uh, from the, you know, Mesopotamia, Aram Naharim. Maybe, maybe that's a, a misprint or maybe that's just a way of saying something else and they get confused about it. And, and the Bible is what the Bible is. What it says is what happened. He came from Mesopotamia. This oppressor came from a distant place. Why is that important? Because it's obvious that God called him to oppress Israel. That the Lord raised up a, 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 an oppressor even as he would then raise up a deliverer. And so we're right back to the fact that God is both the discipliner and the deliverer. He's the one that's behind this and he is the one that is working things to his best interest, which by the way is Israel's best interest. So Kushan, whatever his name means, it was Yahweh's paddle of discipline for Israel until Otniel prevails over him Again, by Yahweh's power. Who the boss? Who the real king here? It ain't Kushan Rishatayim. It is Yahweh who is Elohim. A fourth thing to note is Israel's opportune rest and Yahweh's obvious restraint. If you look at verse 11, then the land had rest 40 years and Otniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 40 in the Bible is a number of judgment. That is how it's most normally applied, judgment. But here they have rest for 40 years. And this is the judgment of God, that they should experience rest. This is the restraint, literally, of his judgment. He judges for a season, in this case, eight years, and then he says, all right, all right, now let me give you 40. Why does he do it this way? This is what God intended for Israel to enjoy the entire time. 
They come under oppression. Everything's messed up. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And God delivers them and says, all right, enjoy my rest. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me give you life with me. Let me show you what, what life trusting in me and following me is like. And he sets up this contrast where they'll enjoy the fruit of the land and farming the land and, and fellowship in the land and worship at Shiloh and, and peace. So it's not just rescue that the guardians secure by the power of God. What they secure is the realization of God's rest. And he gives them these pauses in between punishments so that they can realize what they have. But rather than realizing what they have in the Lord, they go right back to the bales. God restrains his discipline. But he goes from wrath to restraint, from discipline to blessing. And what he's doing then, and he still does it today, he is teaching the difference between what this world has to give and what he truly has to offer. You wanna live in this culture? You wanna be part of this world? Go right ahead. We'll see how that works for you. Go for about eight years, and then the Lord comes in and gives rest. And you see how wonderful it is to be in the fellowship of believers and to be before the Lord and to walk with him daily until we give our lives back to the bales. And God is setting up this contrast, and it is often how he works. Romans chapter two, verse four says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? That's what you said, Jake. I don't know how you knew what I was talking about. His patience. Why is he patient with us? Why is he putting up with what's going on in America right now? I don't understand. I just don't get it, and I am not kidding when I say years ago, I would have gone, I'm done with you. I'm tired of what I'm seeing. The sin and the wickedness and the evil and the maltreatment and the hurt that you're causing your own people, I'm done. That would have been me. Be glad and rejoice that Pastor Rick is not your God. Our patience would have run out years ago. God's patience remains right now. And Paul says, do you think lightly of that? Do you realize? Do you realize someone in here in your personal life how patient he's being with you right now? He's waiting. And in your foolishness, you're like, I don't need God. I don't. And he's going, look, I, I am here. I love you with an everlasting love. I will save you all you gotta do is cry out to me. Do we think lightly of that? Not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what's coming. By the way, as you store up wrath for yourself, wrath spills over into your life. Wonder why you're not happy? Wonder why you can't ever fully get to the place that you wish you could get to? You wonder why you're constantly either being berated or berating yourself or, or disjointed in your life and thinking? It's wrath spilling over. He says, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek 
but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And just in case you miss this, all you gotta do is go one more chapter in Romans to find out that the good that we do is believing in Jesus. It's not the works that you perform before God. It is that you put faith in Jesus, which is the most good you will ever do in your life. It changes everything. The kindness, the patience of God, but there is discipline as well. We are in this temporal pattern. Israel's in this temporal pattern back and forth between discipline and blessing, but we now are in the same kind of pattern with eternity at stake. Tribulation and distress in rebellion or glory, honor, and peace in devotion. So note as we go through the judges, every time there's a rest, and in this case, a 40-year rest, it is by divine restraint so that the people can sample a life lived in the goodness of God. And really, our evangelism in this world, the Christian calling people to the gospel of Jesus Christ is not trying to conform you into our image that's the last thing you need. We are trying to introduce you to the one to whom you might be conformed to a life of following and trust and joy. We were in our shepherds meeting Thursday night and, and we started out just talking about kind of the state of things and, 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 and my, my sense was as we're talking about it, it was just getting darker and darker and darker because honestly, when you talk about the state of the world, I'm not sure which, which direction you can go, but darker, darker and, and, and darker. And yet, as we talked about it, we also were saying, but even in this, isn't it remarkable that we have the joy of the Lord? That it doesn't, no matter how dark the world gets, no matter how wicked or unrighteous or, or messed up in thinking, and how discouraging that can be if you're a follower of Jesus, there are times where you're just like, man, how much more is gonna happen here? How much further from God are we gonna get? But then, in that same moment, you go, God, I'm so thankful for your grace. And we can even have joy in these sometimes very dark times. By the way, speaking of dark times, um, <laughs> the school board in Oak Harbor has an opening. That, that's not a dark time, that's a good thing. Uh, we need some righteous people, righteous by the grace of Jesus. We need some God-fearing people to step into these positions. And I'm just making this known to you and you can talk to Jim Crouch this morning. If you have interest, you have to get an application in by Friday of this week. But there is a need for a school board member in Oak Harbor. But we're in the midst of all these things going on, what Les has called the swirl of, of wickedness and, and, and spiritual warfare and, and activity. And yet in the midst of all this, oh, we have the joy of the Lord. We still have reason to smile and be hopeful. Now, we're done with Otniel's story, but there's one problem with it. It's bland. I mean, it's, it's great you know, that, that, that we see the name of the king and the joke and the pun and all that and the slam, and, 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 but he raises up Otniel and Otniel just delivers the people. How? I want the story. Tell me what happened. There's war and somehow this Kushan Rishataim was defeated. How was he defeated? Where was the blood spilled? We don't get any of that. We get no story. This thing is like oatmeal with no cream or brown sugar. <laughs> Some of you will put raisins. That's gross to me. They taste like little boogers. But that's your thing. <laughs> Whatever you gotta do. Enjoy your breakfast your way. <laughs> 
But I want to know how he did all this, what happened in the war. We get none of that. We just get this very cut and dry, black and white, here's what happened story. Not much to it. Why? I will tell you in a minute. Let's go to the next guardian. The next guardian, wow, this story, my friends, I'm telling you, it's rated R. So you might want to cover your kids' ears. Rated R for graphic, violent content. If this story went up on Netflix as is, it would be TVMA. Just as is. And we're gonna just read it as is. <laughs> as we go now from oatmeal to Eglon. Verse 12, <laughs> the sons of Israel, we actually are going to Ehud, the guardian, but Eglon, you because know, oatmeal and eggs, egg, Eglon. Still with the breakfast theme, are you with me on that? Okay, okay, good. All right, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. It's the palm springs of Israel, Jericho. This is Jericho, the city of the palms. Verse 14, the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So God says, all right, you serve Kushan, uh, what is it? Kushan Rishataim, <laughs> you served him eight years. I'm gonna give you eggs, Eglon, for 18. And you can serve this guy, and Eglon was a bad egg. This guy was huge. As you'll see, he is the only person the Bible describes, verse 17, as a very fat man. This is Jabba the Hutt in, in the biblical narrative. He is a big, beefy, blubbery dude whose name is about the only thing that really fits him. <laughs> His name, Eglon, means big calf. Or we could say fat cow. That would work too. Mr. Big here, he draws together this axis of evil. Three ancient enemies of Israel. He calls together his own Moabites along with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And verse 15, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Why? Why are we sending tribute? Because Israel is trying to appease his royal bigness. Perhaps, and, and, you know, people have asked, well, what was the tribute that they sent to Eglon? And I'm thinking bags of five guys. <laughs> That's what they're sending, you know, burgers and, and fries and shakes, and this is what he wants. Actually, probably they were sending grain and, and fruit of the vine, and, and probably we're sending food to this guy who's just sitting there in Jericho. Whoa, whoa. Eglon, big egg, you know, Jabba the Eglon, Eglon the hut. <laughs> sitting there, big worm of a guy in Jericho. Try and get the picture in your mind. Here comes Ehud, and he's like, oh, Ehud, my bulky. You know, I don't know what he's, it just... You know what? You can never appease the enemy by feeding him. You can never appease sin by just saying, well, I'll just do it this once. 
I'll just do it now. I've got church on Sunday. We'll just kind of get, but for now, I'm with these people, and this is what they're doing, so I'm just going to do that. I'm not going to raise a scene. Just going to enter into the sin. Just going to feed it a little bit. You can't do it because sin is never satisfied, ever. Sin is voracious. And we feed sin just a little bit and it wants more and more and it is the job of the hut of our lives. It's this big, stinking, fat, wormy thing that just gets bigger and bigger. That's sin. Part of the reason why this story has to be so graphic is we've got to grasp what it is that we're dealing with spiritually. So they send a delegation with this tribute to feed the fat man, but, but there's more to this delegation because the Lord raised up the second guardian, Ehud ben Gera, undivided praise, son of the grain, healthy fiber, <laughs> which is so much better for you at breakfast than thick beef. And I'm being serious that whole worship is a great way to start the day. Let's not let this get by us. Listen to Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing, I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the skies. Do you realize David wrote this psalm? He is grabbing his harp, he's grabbing his lyre, and he's singing a worship song while the rest of the guys around the caves and around the camp are just trying to pull together breakfast. You know, they're stumbling into the kitchen going, where's the coffee? And David is singing worship songs to Jesus. And it's such a better way to begin, to start with the Lord. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save me with your right hand and answer me. Because you see, deliverance with God can begin long before oppression awakes. If we're crying out in worship, if we're praising the Lord, if we're seeking him, he is working deliverance before we're even oppressed. He is bypassing things that would be waiting for us simply because we are in awe and honor of his name. There is so much more to worship, I think, than we even yet grasp in our relationship with the Lord. And it doesn't just make us feel good, and it does. Worship does and should make us feel but it is not just about our feelings. There is a dynamic spiritually that takes place when we begin by worshiping the Lord. So here comes this man whose name is worship. And by the way, note that David said, save me by your right hand. Oh, we got a little problem. Ehud is left-handed. Verse 16. Ehud made himself a sword which had Two edges, oh, okay. <laughs> the Holy Spirit misses nothing here. Grasping truths from history and laying it down in scripture to teach more than we might think. You guys know this, the double-edged sword. What's the double-edged sword a picture of? The word of God. The word of God is living and active, Hebrews 4.12, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Keep that in mind in the story. Now, he truly, literally made a sword with two edges, sharp on both sides, a blade ready to go, a cubit in length. So this thing's about 18 inches. He bound it 
on his right thigh under his cloak. That's significant. Why would he bind it on his right thigh? Because if you're left-handed, you're gonna draw from the right. It's a much quicker draw to go this way than to try and go down the side of the body, much more natural to fight. Most would be right-handed. In fact, 90% of the population of Earth is right-handed. How many of y'all are left-handed? Okay, that's about right. Welcome to the club, left-handed people. I, I've told you before, I was supposed to be left-handed, but my mom kept putting the crayon and the pencil in my right hand. Really messed me up. I'm like, I mean, it probably explains a lot to y'all. 10% of the population is left-handed. Ehud was one of those. And so you'd put the sword on the right so you could draw from the right, whereas normal people <laughs> would draw their sword off the left thigh with the right hand. So keep that, keeping that in mind, he makes his sword, he puts it under his cloak, he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. I, I love this. I've heard a couple of guys point this out, that here you've got the sword, which is a picture of the word, and where does he have it? He's got it bound under his cloak. He's got it right there, ready to be rightly handled. I want you to get the point here. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God equipped. What about the woman of God? We'll get to Deborah. Be patient, okay? By the way, for anyone who has a problem with this story, and maybe you don't yet, you will. Anyone who has a problem with this story being in the Bible, I wanna remind you that the sword of the word of God is our authority. The Bible is our authority, and that's not just the verses we like, it's the whole Bible, verse 17. So Ehud, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man, Ooh. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he, pre, that, that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. That's always wise when you're trying to feed sin. Get away from those who are feeding sin. Send them away. <laughs> and so he sent them away, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, oh, keep silent, oh. And all who attended him left him. Now, before we cut further into this story, we get a glimpse of Ehud's heart. Some things, I think, some, some hints as to who Ehud is. And you need to understand this because this story, when it's told, is told many times very, very wrongly. And what I mean is some will call Ehud a murderer, a deceiver, an assassin, and a liar. And the Bible calls him none of these. In fact, the Bible calls Ehud a deliverer. But note this, it's more than just what we would say deliverer. The word that is used where it says God raised up, verse 15, a deliverer for them, Ehud the son of Gera. The word deliverer there is not shofet. And I told you judges is the word shofetim, the plural of shofet. And, and shofet is the word that we translated guardians or judges or deliverers. That's not the word that's used here. When you see the word deliverer here for Ehud, it is the word moshia. Moshia, which draws 
from the root word yasha, Yeshua, God saves. Yasha is salvation. The Lord raised up a savior. That's how the Bible describes Ehud. And actually some of the other judges, guardians as well, will be described as saviors, little s, of the people. That's interesting. So he's not called a murderer. He's called a savior by the scriptures. Secondly, what's more amazing about Ehud was that as a savior, he was a southpaw. He was a left-handed man, ironically, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, son of my right hand. Ehud from Benjamin. Don't think that he wasn't made fun of as a kid. The lefty from Benjamin, son of my right, ooh, my left hand. And how he, he must have grown up with this. I wonder, and, and I, because I have personal stake in this kind of thing, I wonder if he grew up feeling deformed. So I, I was born with a birth defect. I know none of you can tell now, you know, great surgeons, but it, it, it's part of the reality of my life when I was a little kid growing up and all these surgeries, 21, 22 surgeries growing up. And so I, I get that, and I get going to school with scars on my lip and, 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 and bandages and, and, you know, elementary school kids. There's, even today, they may be more quiet about it. Actually, they just get on social media and tear each other apart. But kids can be mean, and I wonder if Ehud grew up with this sense that he's deformed, that he's defective. In fact, in the scriptures, left-handed literally is, is impeded on the right, so it's possible, well, we, I don't want to go too far with this, but it's possible that he had a defect with his right hand, which is why he was left-handed, that he couldn't actually even use the right. Either way, even if he was simply left-handed from the tribe of son of my right hand, he must have grown up with this. He's not like everybody else. My friends, I got to say this loud and clear, you are as God made you. And that's such an incredible thought. Well, I don't like myself. You are as God made you. Well, I don't like what I've been given, my gifts, my talents, or my lack thereof. You are as God made you. Let me be absolutely clear. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, to be clear. He created them. Male and female in the image of God. And by the way, when you're talking with someone who's all messed up in terms of their identity, whatever that messed upness is, or you know, how do you even approach someone who's all you know, messed up in that way or living a lifestyle that's so opposed to the Lord? How do you even talk to someone like that? Filthy sinner, I'm here to save you. <laughs> who's gonna listen to that? Where do you begin? You begin with the fact that they are made in the image of God. Whatever their situation, however they look, whatever their behavior or their lifestyle choices, you can't deny the reality that every single human being was made in the image of God. That's where we start the conversation. And then we continue on to recognizing if I'm made in the image of God, then what is God's design for my life? What does God desire for me? What does my maker and creator know to be best for how I live? And that's where we start to deal with feelings and emotions and the, and the mind. 
But we start with the reality that I am created in God's image. Psalm 139, 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully created. Ephesians 2, 10, we are his workmanship. Paul says, now he's talking to Christians who have now been born again. He says, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So men and women, boys and girls, trust the Lord who made you, but trust him for his purpose in your life, not what you think you are or should be. The reason why I pause with this and with Ehud is this is what we call theocentric thinking. See, there's theocentric, which is godly thinking, and then there's anthropocentric, which is man-centered thinking. And I can look inward and I can think based on, well, this is what I think. This is how I feel. This is what I believe. Or we can say, this is what God says. And when we live with a theocentric mentality, God-centered thinking always sharpens my purpose in this world. Back to Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite. One other thing to note about him, it appears that he rejected idolatry, the very idolatry that was going on in Israel at the time. How do you know that? Look at verse 19 again. It's interesting the way it's written. He himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. It doesn't say he turned back at Gilgal. This is not just geographic, that he was headed away from Eglon, but then he turns back to go to Jericho to talk with Jabba the Eglon again. It's not something as simple as geography. He turned back, the Bible says, from the idols which were at Gilgal. And I think the Lord is telling us something here about Ehud. Remember Gilgal? Gilgal was the staging ground for Israel. It's the first place that they camped when they, after crossing the Jordan, Gilgal. They would set out from Gilgal in every conquest across seven years from the, of the land, the first being Jericho, which is now where big fat Eglon has made his throne. There in Jericho, it is, it's like getting right up, up in God's face going, see, see, the enemy would say, we took back what you took. So they're there in Jericho. He goes to Gilgal and he turns back. From Gilgal, well, Gilgal was also where Joshua set up the altar of seven or, uh, 12 stones. Remember that? 12 stones on which he wrote the entire Torah law. That's set up at Gilgal. It's also where the angel of the Lord, who we talked about last week, the Malach Yahweh, it says, came up from Gilgal to Bochim, the place of weeping where he met with and talked to the people. Well, that makes sense because the tabernacle at first was in Gilgal. So the angel of the Lord would have come from there to where the people were located when he talked to them, and that's back in chapter two. Gilgal seems to have fallen into idolatry and early on. This very place where they stayed at first now has idols surrounding it. The word idols here is pesalim, and it can mean quarries, it can mean monoliths, it can mean carved statues, and some even think that it's possible that either pagan Canaanites or some Israelites actually took hold of some of the stones of the 12 stones at Gilgal and carved them into idols. Now, I don't know if that's what happened, 
But we know there were idols at Gilgal. And here we have Ehud and, and very picturesque in the Bible. He goes to Gilgal and he turns back from the place of the idols. He turns away, if you will, from the idols. And what does he do? He goes back into war. And it's almost as if Ehud makes up his mind, deciding now, having brought the tribute to the big fat picture of sin, having brought the tribute, and, and now he departs, but he gets as far as Gilgal. You can get this picture. He sees the idols and he goes, this is just not, no, this is not okay. He's got his sword. He already had in mind what he was gonna do. He didn't do it the first time, but as he goes away, he turns around, he turns back from the idols, and he goes in with the purpose that was in his heart from early on. He goes back to see King Eglon. And after an 18-year bull market, Some of this is just for me, I think. Uh, a bull market of heavy taxation and, and, and major oppression of the people. King Eglon is about to be the fattened calf for the slaughter, verse 20. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message for, from God for you. And he arose from his seat, I'm sure not without some difficulty. Ooh, oh, oh. I have a message from God for you. And some would say, oh, okay, he's deceiving him right here. No, this is no lie. He has a message from God for Eglon. It's not the message that, that Ego was thinking. It, it, it was a message from God that needed to be delivered. It was much sharper than this Moabite king expected. Yes, I said Ego. Verse 21, Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. And he did not draw the sword out of his belly. And the refuse came out. Compare that to what we read in Oatmeal's story. We didn't get any of that. Oatmeal went to war and won. Okay, great. Now we get... Now, how graphic do you want me to be here? I'll keep going, all right. The camera in this verse switches to high def, high res, slow motion. <laughs> we begin to watch this scene unfold before us, and my friends, it is more sick than the English explains. I mean, this is, this is brutal. And, you know, I, I don't know if, if you're grabbing your sword and you're thrusting it in. Maybe you're not thinking about precision. You're just thinking, I'm gonna take this guy out. The word for refuse, the sword goes in, right? And out comes the refuse. And I always used to think the sword went in and he just kind of kind of split him open and bleh, all the guts and everything. Yeah, the sword goes in and the fat closed over the blade and the refuse came out. The word, <laughs> I, I really, this week, I'm looking at it going, how much do we really want to cover of this? I'm in it now, deep. The word refuse is parsedona in the Hebrew and it's contents of the gut or excrement. That's the word. It's from the word <laughs> parsedon, which means whole. 
This is what the language describes. The blade went into Eglon's gut at a downward angle through his massive body, 18 inches, and came out his backside, yes, right where you're thinking. And it evacuated his bowels in the process. And he fell over dead. This is disgusting. I mean, this is shocking. It's probably the most disgusting verse in the entire Bible as far as how how descriptive it is and gross and explicit. And the people of Israel reading this would have been going, yeah, woo, tell it again in synagogue. Read that one more time. Knowing exactly what we're talking about. And we need to get this. We need to get this for as graphic and disgusting as it is. Verse 23, read on. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule. By the way, there's another picture kind of here that the refuse came out. Now Ehud comes out. (laughs) So there's another word play. He went out into the vestibule, shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. So he's on his throne, not the other throne, not the throne you're thinking, but he's on a throne. They're thinking. And verse 25, they waited until they became anxious, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. The word behold is used three times there. The word is hina in the Hebrew, and this describes kind of a shock or, or a surprise, a whoa, what's going on here? They see him there on the floor, this heap of cow lying in his own excrement. There's no weapon. It's inside him. Deep within his blubber, and the Bible describes all of this. Verse 26, now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. So interesting, he does not go back to the idols. He passes them by. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. So he's not running away. He's gathering the army, and he's coming right back to warfare, and now his courage is ignited. What ignited his courage? The sword. The sword of the word of God always ignites courage, and so now he's pumped up, and he's leading the charge of the army of the Israelites. He said, verse 28, pursue, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan, probably some Chevys as well, I don't know, but um, opposite Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. Again, why the graphic content in this picture of the sword going in and and all the mess of, of Eglon there on the floor? Because what refuse and fatty matter and excrement or feces are to you and to me, sin is to God. That is a picture of sin lying on the floor. That is how disgusting. See, we, I don't think any of us really understand how vile sin is to God. How eternally disgusting and smelly and, and putrid and grotesque. Sin to God is a sickening waste of, of a life that he created. 
of a being made in his image, sin is excrement. It is disgusting. Throughout the Bible, he calls sin an abomination. Isn't it remarkable that people, even in our culture today, will go, how dare you call my lifestyle an abomination? It is. It's disgusting to the Lord. Why? Because it's killing you. Because that picture of Eglon on the floor is you and me without a savior. And when you talk about the compassionate, loving heart of God who is desperate to save everybody he's created, and there are those who say, no, no, I don't want that. It's disgusting to him. Jeremiah 16, 18, God says, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. And that word abomination throughout the Hebrew scriptures, you've heard before, some of you Bible students, it's to'abah, and it means a disgusting thing. Sin is a disgusting thing to God. And until we realize how putrid and sick and gross and vile it really is, we're not gonna grasp our need for a savior. What do I need Jesus for? I'm just fine. No, you're not. You're vile. You're Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> and again, I'm using the picture. Yeah, there's some humor here, but, but there's this, he's gross. That big worm is disgusting in the Star Wars with the snot rolling out of his nose and his tongue. Bleh, bleh. That is sin. That's a great picture for sin. That's what you look like. Oh, I'm so beautiful in the, in the things that I'm doing, in the life that I'm living, in the way that I'm, that I'm partying. And the Lord goes, you're Jabba. You stink. That's vile. You're disgusting. I created you in my image. Get this, that double-edged sword. I want to take this a little further than perhaps we're thinking. The word of God, again, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. In Eglon's case, fat and feces able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, so in goes the sword. And, and the sword, that double-edged sword, yes, it's a picture of the word of God. The Bible says we get washed with the water and the word. There's a cleansing. Sin gets killed dead by the word of God. But someone might still say, I've tried Bible study. And I'm still oppressed by my big fat sin. I try to read the Bible but I find myself going back to the same old stuff. First of all, I'm not sure you've really gotten into the word. Psalm 119, 11 says, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And one of the strongest things you can do to battle any sin that you're struggling with in your life is to be in the word. Commit yourself to Bible study, Bible reading, personal quiet time. Being here Sunday morning, Wednesday night, get as much of the word as you can because it is a two-edged sword and it will divide out the sin in your life. But there's more to this, more to the graphic picture that we see and more than simply a call to Bible study. And I think it is, I think there's that picture, but it's greater because you see, Jesus Christ is both savior and sword. He's both. The word, the word, the sword is the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. 
Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's the word in you that cleanses out the filth of sin. My friends, it's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. It kills that old fat sinner dead. And it rescues us, Jesus does, from the heavy oppression of our sin. And Paul says, and it's one of the most powerful verses in the word, Colossians 1.27, he says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Remember I told you the spirit came upon the deliverers? Well, guess what? Jesus comes into you. He is within you. He dwells in you. He remains within you. He is the power to overcome sin. His word spoken and, and living, it's Jesus. And he's the one who changes our lives. And he's the one to whom we turn and cry out. And maybe you're not even to the point of repentance yet, but you are sick and tired of the pain of life and of the doldrums of life. And so you cry out, God, if you're there, save me. You know what's funny? That's not repentance, not yet. See, what God will do is then show you kindness, which leads you to repentance. And then you start to realize, wow, I, I, I can't live this way anymore. Save me. And Jesus, who is the sword of the word, he comes in. Verse 30 says, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So now he extends, he doubles the time of rest and peace. He takes it way beyond. Let me, let me give you even more of my goodness. Let me, let me give you more experience. And I hear Jesus saying, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. One more guardian. But it's just one verse, verse 31. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anat, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Ever heard of Shamgar? How many of you are big fans <laughs> of Shamgar? We got one Shamgar fan. How many of you have never even heard the name Shamgar before? Or maybe it's, okay, I think it was one of those weird Bible things. Maybe they're, yeah, one verse. Now he'll be mentioned one more time in the book of Judges. But I, I doubt many of you have studied out Shamgar in a Bible study class or Bible study fellowship. Probably didn't spend a whole lot of time on Shamgar. Maybe in a precept study, you, you, you colored his name, the color of the judges or something, but who is Shamgar? Listen, if, if oatmeal's story is like plain oatmeal and Ehud's story gets into the meat and the eggs, Shamgar is, as I said, like instant breakfast or a multivitamin. He is just a one-shot, one-verse, strong deliverer, and done, and we move on. So I'll tell you all that we know about Shamgar in a sentence, because we only get one. His name, sword, Shamgar, is not Hebrew. So it's most likely this guy is not an Israelite. That's shocking. His father's name, Anat, which I told you means answer. And I said, I'm not sure it means answer. Why did I say that? Because Anat is a Canaanite goddess. To say someone is a son of Anat was to say someone's a worshiper of Anat. 
The answer, Anat. Shamgar, the son of Anat, we may be looking at a, a, a Canaanite name, sword, worshiper of Anat. And that may have been who he was, possibly, at one time. We don't know. But you know what we do know? He also saved Israel. He also saved Israel. And by the way, he did it with an ox goad. He didn't do it high tech, he went low tech. An ox goad is a cattle prod. So the guy was probably a rancher or a farmer. And with a cattle prod, he takes out 600 Philistines. So the question is, can God use someone, not even of his own people, to deliver or bring salvation? You better believe he can. You better believe he can. Romans 9, 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Matthew Henry says, sometimes God chooses to work by such unlikely or simple means that the excellency of the power may be seen to be of God. And that is the point of the story of Oatmeal. The reason why the story is so bland, so straightforward, so unadorned, it is the story of Oatmeal, the first judge, is the model or prototype for all the rest of the judges. This is the picture. All the judges, their, their stories will range from common to compelling, from ordinary to intriguing. But the point of the whole book and the point of every salvation is that in no case should the judges ever obscure our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. O'Neill, what did he do? Well, went to war and saved. How did he do it? I don't, by the power of God. By the power of God. How did Ehud do it? Well, he took out his sword. No, don't tell me the story again. How did he do it? By the power of God. Shamgar, how with a cattle prod do you take out 600 enemies? By the power of God, of God. the guardians are saviors, little s. But no man or woman can ever be the source of salvation or of deliverance. You aren't, I'm not. There's only one. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he stood on the shores of the Galilee, and he said, come and have breakfast. And John 21, 12 continues, none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. It was the Lord, and that should be where we land at the end of Judges. No one will question who he is. No one will question what he's done. It was the Lord. On that beach, they knew what he had done, Jesus, and they knew who he was, Emmanuel. Do you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these amazing stories, sometimes a bit upsetting, uh, disturbing, but thank you, Lord, for giving them to us. And I pray right now, Lord, that we wouldn't take them simply as that, as, as intrigue, as fun, as breakfast stories. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be convicted in our hearts that there is a great God and Savior who desperately loves us. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would impact us even this morning in our lives, this week. Some here in the fellowship this morning, they need deliverance. And I pray, Father, that deliverance will come. Deliverance from physical malady, deliverance from mental anguish, deliverance from spiritual attack. There are some here who simply need to be delivered and they have been under oppression long enough. Hear their cries, Father, I pray, and deliver. There are those here who need discipline. And Lord, I say this carefully because I don't want it. But if I need it, then I ask you to bring it. As a father loves his sons, his daughters, there's those who need to be disciplined and I pray your discipline would come because Lord, right now we're in a temporal state. I pray that you will prepare all of us for eternity in Jesus' name, amen.